0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: Welcome to Backstage With, conversations with your favorite theater actors and creatives. I'm Mikey Worrell. Today's guest is a two-time Olivier Award nominee. She's best known for originating roles in West End musicals such as Lend Me a Tenor, Bend It Like Beckham, The Girls and Made in Dagenham. She's also been in the musical pastiche productions of Forbidden Broadway and Spammelton. You can see her this coming Saturday live in person or on a live stream as she returns to the stage at Crazy Cox in London. Her solo show, May I Have a Moment, will celebrate the great British musical and revisit some of her favourite roles. Here's my conversation with Sophie-Louise Dan. Thank you for coming on the show.
0: Pleasure, sweetheart.
1: You've had such a varied career, done lots of original British musicals. The first thing I want to ask you about is which part or show would you say has come closest to being the perfect job?
0: Okay, it's, it's a toss up really but I, I do have to say the musical adaptation of Lend Me a Tenor because I was cast as Diana Devane, who is an operatic diva. She's one of those characters who she has been waiting such a long time for her moment and she is granted the moment to audition for her, let, let's say, her Jonas Kaufman of the day. And that is what culminates in the, the five-minute show-stopping number, May I Have a Moment. There are a lot of reasons why I loved that show so much. Predominantly, it was the creative team and the process. We had an incredible American set of producers, Ian Tolbert directed us, and we had just a dreamy cast. So all of that, it's like baking a cake, really, <laughs> and watching it, you know, be the perfect creation. And it's going back a few years now. It's its actually 10 years since we did it in Plymouth, and then we came in for a short season to the beautiful Gielgud Theatre.
1: My favourite. Gorgeous.
0: Alongside some great contemporaries, so Damien Humbly, Michael Matus, Joe Riding, and Cassidy Jansen, And at the helm is our gorgeous Matthew Kelly. So there we go. Diana Devane in Lenny Atena has to trump. That's, that's the, the most memorable role for a lot of reasons.
1: I really want to hear about the, the process in a, in a bit more detail, if you'll indulge me, because I romanticise the whole thing about the out-of-town tryout and then coming into the West End, because... In this country, it doesn't happen very often where you get that life in in an original show. We seem to just have flop after flop after flop or something. We'll do a short run or they'll come straight into town and rush it. I know. So what did it mean to you to get that time to actually bed in outside of the West End?
0: Yeah, it's extraordinary because it's the American way. It is the American way. You do it out of town. You iron all your crinkles out. You get your teething problems out of the way. You get rid of the dead wood. You know, some things don't make the cut. Some things that, you know, you as an artiste love, but it just doesn't land. So it's not needed on that voyage. So interesting. Yes, we, we started in Plymouth. And the whole set was created in their extraordinary facility down there, TR2. Uh, It was an automated set, which we were lucky enough to work with during the rehearsal process. Goodness. And let's just take, let's just break down, seeing as you're so interested, let's just break down the process of creating a number for the artiste, for the narrative of the show, for what happens, uh, you know, is it in the right place? Does it need to be shortened? And with May I Have a Moment, the very nature of the piece is this, this mad character, Diana Devane, sort of auditions her whole repertoire of operatic snippets. So we started in Plymouth with probably too many And then as you gauge the audience's reaction, you think, yeah, that one's not really quite good enough. No, they're bored by now. Let's get rid of that, that, that. So the structure of the song, you have that luxury of time to get the structure absolutely perfect before you come into the glittering lights of the West End. Then, of course, you have another preview process where things can change even further. But that's what's so exciting it's so exciting it's you you're 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 always creating striving for perfection and in the words of we'll talk about great british musicals in a minute but talking about the american way it's make it funnier faster louder
1: i love that <laughs> yeah the the american way is such an interesting concept because it's so huge in terms of this industry mm. i feel like american people are aware of the concept of the out of town tryout much more than they are here and yeah. You know, we see so many touring shows where it's the same productions because we're, I think here we're obviously a lot more risk averse in our regional audiences. Yeah. You might disagree. I, I, no, no, no. I'm really interested to know how you found the audience reception in Plymouth where they might be like, oh, so this is new. Did, did they get it? Did they understand what was going on?
0: They did. Because the other thing is you, you have to, they were very canny, our lovely team. Plymouth is known for this and they get excited about it. They get excited about the fact that Something new is being tried out in their theatre. They've got the facility. And I mean, I suppose we should just briefly, you know, touch on the extraordinary sadness that we're going through at the moment. Thank you, COVID-19. That these great institutions, these great theatrical places are under such pressure and, and really struggling. And I can only hope that they're still going to be there you know, in, in the next 18 months. However, let's remember the good times. So let's remember Absolutely. that, yes, you, you have a captive audience that it, it wants to support it and wants to be the first ones who have seen it uh, and, want, and want to talk about it and want to get the word out there that everyone should see this so that the buzz is created, which is great. And then it's interesting, I'm often asked, oh, why don't you do more television? I'm not that animal. I love working off the, the energy of a live audience, a shared experience. There's, there's nothing like it. And it's what makes me tick.
1: Do you remember the day you got your Olivier nomination for Lend Me a Tenor?
0: <laughs> yeah, yes, I do. I do. It's extraordinary. Um, Olivier nominations are, um, or any, any nominations for any award, are, they're, they're rather lovely. Because it just means that you've been recognized uh, not only from uh, management but by your peers, and that is something I think we all strive for, really. Yes, I, I can remember I was in, actually in a workshop rather an earnest workshop for something, and my phone was on silent, but darndest thing, it kept going. Bzz, 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 bzz thought oh, goodness me what is that something you know I've got elderly parents and I thought oh, crikey something's wrong or um and everyone I, I looked down briefly and it said congratulations and I thought well oh, I'm not pregnant what what on earth is this <laughs> <that?"> <laughs> <laughs> and then then I read it and I couldn't quite believe it it came out of the blue which I think was even nicer really it was completely off my radar, but yeah, it was a very special moment. And then we all had cake and champagne, actually. So there we are. What's not to like?
1: <laughs> oh, lovely. Yeah. We know, obviously, the Tony Awards are so revered in America. Do you think the Olivier's deserve more more of a reputation in the mainstream?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Going back to how Broadway and its absolute fraternity is it's in their DNA, when I'm working with a very wonderful team of Forbidden Broadway, the pastiche show that I do, there are two differences, really. They always say that Broadway's DNA is in musical theatre, but the British trump them with the language of text and the, the spoken word, the, the Shakespeare, the Royal Shakespeare Company, the National. they, they You know, we, we trump them over that. I think... What I would like to see more, sorry, the sun's in my eyes here. <laughs> what I would like to see more with the Oliviers going forward is not the household names and the television stars and the movie stars who come and do a season in a play being heralded as, oh, of course, they deserve the nomination. But what am I trying to say? There's a, there's a whole dynamic of people that deserve recognition alongside those uh, stars, and it's a, it's a difficult thing because it, we we it used to be a rather lovely lunch ceremony in a hotel. Now, of course, it's uh, it's um, televised, etc. But by the same token, you know, television needs the people who who people relate to, but it doesn't it doesn't actually relate to the talent that is there doing eight shows a week every day, the stalwarts of our industry.
1: Absolutely. You talk about the DNA. There, there is a certain DNA to an original British musical. You've done a number of them, Lend Me a Tenor, Made in Dagnum, Bended Like Beckham, The Girls. Yes. Did the renaming of The Girls come while you were still in it, when it became Calendar Girls?
0: No. Don't quote me on this, but I think they were, they were always eager to use Calendar Girls as the title, but they, they started off the process very early in, in the, at the village hall. The original workshops were done in the village hall and they stuck with the girls for bringing it forward into the West End. And I, there is a little bit of me that thinks it may have lasted perhaps a, a longer run if they had decided on the title of Calendar Girls. I mean, it it then went on a very, very fruitful tour with um, my gorgeous uh, friend and colleague, Anna Jane Casey. But I had an extraordinary time on that show. I mean, six lovely, mature women of a certain age, the experience between us on the stage, it it was tangible. It was a wonderful experience. Throw in that, you know, having to get your kit off. You want to be surrounded by lovely people who, <laughs> who you know, are behind you all the way. So, and also for me, obviously, my, my boy band crush, Gary Barlow, no secret there. I mean, I was in heaven.
1: I did I did want to ask about that actually having worked with you know much more traditional musical theatre composers to then work with a pop star yeah are you going into the process going what's this going to be like
0: well yeah it's interesting I mean in any in any piece and let's take um you mentioned uh, which would become second in my favorite favorite roles and process of putting a show together is Made in Dagenham You have the brilliance of David Arnold with his composition, with the talent of Richard Thomas' lyrics and all the sardonic wit that goes with it. Putting any piece together heightened through music, you've still got to tell the story. Tell the story and stick to the truth. And that is really what takes you through it, it uh, resonates it resonates throughout the evening whether from from beginning to end whether it's hmm. a ballad or a comedy song or you've still got to tell the story and so I approach when, when I'm working with any team I always look for that first but Gary and Tim Firth obviously the, the writing partner they just had something very very special and they captured the essence of all those all those women i think the 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 go to uh, sort of track that they play from calendar girls the musical is yorkshire yeah the big opening number and and there's something that really sticks with you it's uh, it's an earworm and uh, i think because of his pop star track record that's what you get it's a hook it's a hook
1: yes Yes, and obviously he's, he, this isn't the only musical he's done. He obviously did uh, Finding Neverland Finding as well. Finding Neverland,
0: so. indeed. Yes, that's right. Beautiful yes.
1: score. Beautiful, beautiful score. Those four musicals that I mentioned, two of them at the Phoenix, one at the Adelphi, the Gielgud. Do you have a favourite West End theatre?
0: That I've played or or not necessarily? Oh, really? or, or
1: not necessarily that you've played?
0: Oh, I think one of my favourite houses is the Palladium. I mean, not only because of its its absolute size and stature but the people who've played there over the years you can just kind of feel them in the in the fabric of the building second only to that i'm going to go out of town a little bit to the hackney empire
1: mm-hmm.
0: i mean way way back i used to do music hall at the players theater uh, and so when i was fortunate enough to do pantomime the wonderful pantomime at hackney empire you know the great Murray lloyd used to play that Theatre, and uh, again, I think I could feel I could feel that all the people who had trodden those boards over the years. They're in the fabric of the building. Very, very beautiful.
1: I am keen to hear about your time in Forbidden Broadway, the the pastiche that you mentioned, because obviously it's hugely popular in New York, and they have albums and everything. And then it, and then it transferred over here. What did people make of it over here?
0: Yeah. Now I've been part of the Forbidden Broadway family for. 22 years
1: goodness I didn't realize it was that long yes
0: because we've we um probably on your radar is the um versions at the chocolate factory yes yeah okay so I was fortunate enough to be involved originally at German street Yes, and then we did a short West End season at when it was the Albury, which is now the Noel Coward, mm-hmm. which was very different because you're taking it from such an intimate space where you can see everybody, you can see what everybody's had for breakfast, um, and then you take it to a cross arch and a much bigger house. I mean, it worked, but for me, the essence of that show is intimacy and the the vocabulary of cabaret, really. So I have absolutely loved my time with that team, a gentleman who I count as my mentor as well as a dear, dear friend as uh, Philip George, who directed me in all of those. And there's just teaches you everything you need to know. Again, funnier, faster, louder, park and bark. Yeah, it's funny, but put it on a diet. You know, all these things just – inform you as an artiste to get every ounce out of the comedy it's always the same format it's always 45 minutes 50 minutes so that the audience kind of are left wanting more 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 there's no no let up really so twice at the chocolate factory and then two years ago working with Gerard Alessandrini on his spoof Spamilton yes which I
1: I was I really wanted to see that, but I never got the chance. What What can you tell me about it?
0: Oh, it's extraordinary. He had this idea that he wanted to spoof the incredible Hamilton. And whenever he approaches a, a, a project, there's always that fine line of mm, gosh, mm, are they just being nasty? No, it's a love letter to the form. And they always say imitation is the highest form of flattery. <laughs> so if you are spoofed in Forbidden Broadway, it's it's kind of an an accolade, really. Uh, So when Spamilton was announced, I thought, oh, well, I'll go and see it because I I love Gerard and I love his work. Little did I know that there was going to be a track uh, for me, for some of the divas that I had already inhabited in um, in Forbidden Broadway. Because throughout the, the action, Elaine Page rocks up and Julie Andrews pops along and Liza giving their view on this new kind of rap uh, format that uh, Lin Manuel Miranda has, has made his own. But the, the brilliant thing about Spamerton was it was such a fantastically diverse cast, which we're all trying to champion these days. I had uh, the most wonderful time on Bendit Like Beckham with some incredibly talented Asian performers who i'm i'm thrilled have gone on to other things which is it's brilliant and i i love i love watching talent start young and and then s- and follow them in their career
1: what would you say was your favorite number in your forbidden broadway spammleton outings
0: oh um, liza
1: liza minnelli <laughs> i can see i can see the resemblance uh-huh. i can see it
0: oh bless you completely bonkers number which is a a, a spoof on Down With Love and she came on and said Down With Rap (laughs) 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 with uh, with the the four boys around her in her her red Halston chiffon fantastic
1: of course of course of
0: course what else
1: now we have to talk about the king Mr Sondheim you've done Sunday in the Park with George over in Paris and Sweeney Todd over here as well yes
0: yes My goodness, let's talk about Paris.
1: Yes, so I hear there's a story, a story around this. I'm reliably informed. (laughs) Oh. About a last minute change.
0: A last minute change. Okay. Thank you for saying it's that story, because there's also another one that I'm not sure I need to share until I write my memoirs.
1: Okay. (laughs) Now I I wish it was the other story.
0: (laughs) No, interesting. As an artist, so... You are hired to play Dot at the Théâtre de Châtelet, which is a European opera house with an orchestra or supersized to 48. Now you've got to remember the the story is basically a beautiful love story between Dot and Georges Seurat with some incredible characters around that. But basically it's an intimate love story. So I am a musical theater actress of course predominantly but I also have a classical training and have for many years done light operetta that you know as a Savoyard a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan and so we came upon the slight dilemma of how the management wanted it sung and we rehearsed predominantly in a musical theater Canberra, until we got to tech, where there was some discussion as to, and this is all sort of going on behind the scenes, some slight discussion as to they didn't quite like the way I was singing it. So at midnight, with the conductor, we went into a room and I said, well, okay, I can sort this out. I think I can help us out here. Not on my my heart of hearts thinking, I don't think this is going to work but I'm going to do as I'm bidden. I'm just the hired hand. So I started to sing it in a more classical, legit way. And of course, who was at the dress rehearsal, but the King himself, Mr. Sondheim, who had his own uh, opinion of this. And afterwards said, you know, along the lines of,
1: why is she singing it like that? (laughs) (laughs) That's uncanny.
0: (laughs) So, talk about between a rock and a hard place. We had another midnight meeting, and I mean, this is all, you know, whilst we're, we've been in tech, we're doing quick changes and things, and, you know, there's a lot of stress going on. So it was decided that I should sing it the way I had originally been rehearsing it, but no pressure. <laughs> No pressure to go out the next day to a full house of, uh, you know, at a very excited full house at the Châtelet, you know, expecting with great anticipation, this wonderful production of Sunday in the Park with George. But uh, we, 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 came to, we came to a, a, a happy um, decision, a happy conclusion. And to my knowledge, as, as far as I'm aware, everybody was happy and I'm rather pleased that uh, during our last performances, and you have to remember it was opera scheduling. So we didn't do eight shows a week. We did 11 performances, I think in total. Right. Over a period of six weeks. So unlike anything that we know, where you, you sing it in, the muscle knows what it needs to do because you're doing it eight times a week. You're coming to it slightly cold, but the penultimate performances were filmed by Mezzo, the arts channel in Europe and i didn't really take it in because it had been a very stressful contract for those reasons but i'm rather glad now when people say to me oh we watched it on youtube it's there for everybody to see and remember and as i say more often than not it's received with um great pleasure (laughs)
1: it's such a beautiful piece what's i it's such a basic question but i just i just love knowing as as an artist what people's favorite bits of the shows they've done are what's your favorite bit of sunday in the park with george
0: oh i think it has to be going into the finale of act two and move on when dot it comes back as as the ghost to to visit george and all his his artist block Yeah, it's very special. And I think that duet is probably one of the most extraordinary pieces of contemporary musical theatre composition.
1: I wholeheartedly agree. (laughs) Who was your George? Was it Julian Ovenden? It was Julian
0: Ovenden. Lovely Julian. So dishy. Gorgeous. I know.
1: I know. (laughs) Back to Sonnen. Did you have any conversations with, with him? at all around that time during that contract or, or did that all come sort of messages no, that, came,
0: that came through different channels um I'm, I'm sad to say we uh he was wonderful at the curtain call uh and you know the photograph of the scrapbook were all on stage with him but we did we had very little uh, interaction with him
1: right do you prefer sunday in the park with george to sweeney todd
0: oh that's a tough one now if my husband were here because he he was the original soldier at the National Theatre, Nick Kolikos is my hubby. He has an irrational passion for Sunday in the Park with George. But my... <laughs> I love that, an irrational
1: <laughs> passion. <laughs> <laughs> so apt for Sondheim, that Thank phrase. Thank you.
0: But my allegiance would go with Sweeney Todd. I think it is a masterpiece. And I think it's a masterpiece because I don't think they write them like that anymore, and particularly the role, the role of Nellie Lovett. Is extraordinary in its structure. Interesting because I I was so delighted to to do. It was a co production between Mercury Theatre, Colchester, and Derby. We had the most incredible team. Dan Buckroyd, who now runs Exeter Northcott, uh, was our director. Sarah Perks, her design was exquisite. And, and the, the wonderful Hugh Maynard, who is probably the nicest gentleman you'll ever come across, you know, inhabited Sweeney with all that aggression and, and uh, passion. Yeah, I loved her. I loved inhabiting Nellie Lovett and inhabiting my set, making my pies, putting paper in the oven. Oh, it was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant.
1: I just don't think there is a dark comedy role, another dark comedy role like it, is there?
0: I don't think so. No, perhaps if, I, perhaps if I'd had five more minutes to think about that, I might come up with one. But I think she she's a monster. And, and people think Sweeney's the monster, but she's the monster. She drives that. She plants the seed and goes, well, you know, what are we going to do with the Italian? Oh, here's, here's a thought. Try a little priest.
1: <laughs> possibly the best Act 1 finale in terms of lyrics, certainly, ever written.
0: Quite possibly. Quite possibly. The brilliance of those lyrics and how they oh. all knit together. One, i tell you what other sequence I adore in that. It's heartbreaking. Is nothing's going to harm you. Now, she's knitting. She's knitting a little muffler for her beloved Tobias. And he cottons on, spoiler alert, he cottons on that the purse that she's got belonged to Pirelli, who was his master, who disappeared in very strange circumstances. And throughout that piece, where the the dialogue interacts with the song, not only does he realize that there's something terribly wrong, but she realizes she has to do away with Tobias because he knows too much. And it's heartbreaking with the sentiment of the song saying, nothing's going to harm you where everything is going to harm him. <laughs> oh. In the next four minutes. It's, it's, it's um, yeah, I loved playing that scene. Ryan Heenan was my Tobias. What a talent he is. And it was, um, yeah, it's what you know when there's a production shot that's taken that you always go back to? There's one of Ryan and I in that, in that scene. And I, I love it. I love it.
1: Do you ever keep any of them? Have any framed?
0: Uh, we have some. We have, we have a sort of rogues gallery of um, theatrical moments that we love. And we have in our study, we have some rather nice CD, you know, the um, original cast. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's lovely. CDs. Yes. So we, we've got the just, just, just cherry picked some. Yeah.
1: Very nice. Oh, yeah, because you you must. How many cast recordings have you done? It's quite a few, isn't it? Now? Yeah.
0: So I think it's uh, five. It's five.
1: That's a lot by today's standard by where today's not standards. every show gets one. Yes,
0: indeed. 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 But um, I think.
1: Which one are you most proud of? Oh,
0: oh, oh that's a horrible word. <laughs> we just... God, I think it has to be Lemmy tenor again. Or, oh, no, here we are with thinking out the box here. I did a wonderful, uh, was it 6 weeks? We started at Finbra and then we transferred to another pocket-sized theatre with Gaze the Word. Oh, I've heard of that. Yes, now this was Ivan Novello's last piece. And it was written for a performer in the 50s, called Cicely Courtnidge. We don't get them like that now. She was a, a variety stalwart, fantastic. And it's a it's, it's a fabulous piece and there are some brilliant patter songs in it. And we actually did a cast recording of that, which I think a non-commercial venture, that's my favorite. I'm proud of that. There we go. Proud of that.
1: Lovely. <laughs> lovely. I am very keen to talk about your time in Les Miserables as someone who has done lots of originating to then go into a show that is 30 years old where the constraints of the direction are so tight. Dare I ask how that was?
0: It was different. No, I'm going to be completely honest. It was something that I had long wanted to do. I long wanted to be part of that show. And I mean, God, as a young artiste, I've i got the audition material for Cassette, Eponine, Fontaine, you name it. Uh, but it just... It just didn't happen for various reasons over the years and it was never going to be the avenue that I was going to go down. So when this new uh, version was being touted, I, I did say to my agent, look, don't think I'm mad. I, I know this isn't what we normally talk about and throwing my hat in the ring for because I'm such a... Or I like it from, you know, page to stage, ground floor and all that. And let's see how we can make it work for Sophie-Louise <laughs> But I wouldn't mind being seen for Madame Tenardier.
1: What did your agent say?
0: <laughs> he said, okay. And obviously, there are some shows you do for love there are some shows you do for the project and there are some that you can earn a little bit of money. So there was going to be that. So I went in and met the team uh, and met Cameron and one of the greatest things that came from that show, actually, I have to say, that contract was working with Martin Ball, who (laughs) we have known each other for 30 years. So we, we are like an old married couple. So that part of it was wonderful. You know, you're on stage with somebody you absolutely trust and adore and feed off and work with, and you are the double act. I'm not going to lie. The process process I found very restricting, but it was a process I hadn't been part of before. And it was also very long it it answered a lot of questions for me as an artist
1: in terms of a long contract do you mean
0: yeah yeah a long contract a long contract doing something that has um, been long established didn't give me the the flexibility that i would perhaps enjoy more in a new piece but you know i did it i'm very i'm, I'm I feel very um, very blessed that actually in my career I, I was part of it because it was such a big part of, of when I was at college, obviously the original was at the, the palace and I remember attending a performance with my mum, my dad and my sister who was working in London uh, before I went to college and a little bit like Hamilton today. We'd never seen anything like it, but I just knew that was what I wanted to do. I had to be part of it one day. And so I take from that, however strange the process was and and whatever happened along the way, I still remember that that is what informed me coming into this industry. And I'm very pleased that actually I was privileged enough to be part of it.
1: The frustration that comes with that feeling of being restricted, was that something that you experienced more during the rehearsals or during the actual run where your instinct is to play with it, but then your head has to sort of rein it in and go, no, you can't?
0: A little bit of both, uh, because um, obviously rehearsals are run like clockwork. I mean, you know, the the, the team of people know, know what they're at and they know what they want, all in the right order. But then, of course, you know when you are when you've been given the freedom of, the, of the, um, projects like Forbidden Broadway, you know you've worked with amazing directors like Rupert Gould, who even when you are playing people uh, historical figures, in you know, Barbara Castle in Made in Dagenham, you know I was allowed to I had to honour her legacy, but I was allowed to heighten her obviously within the parameters of a musical, so. Yeah, I think probably in rehearsal. I mean, when you're out there and you are playing with an audience, I mean, the Dublin audiences in particular, where they just love the Tenardiers, they love the baddies, you know, and it, uh, you, you've got a great buzz playing off it because the structure of the show is so brilliantly written. You know, as somebody said, ain't a lot of laughs until, <laughs> until you get to the inn. And then these are the jokes, folks, and this you, that's, that's what you're there for. You're, you're there for a bit of light relief. And, and working with Martin was brilliant, brilliant.
1: It is such a historical show to have been in. When you look back on it, is there a certain moment in that show that you're just like, yeah, I, it was worth it because I got to do that bit?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think um, it's so iconic, isn't it? It is so iconic. And just to to stand there in the wings, about to go on and terrorise however many little cassettes we had up and down the country. I mean, what was interesting is when we we rehearsed, we used to meet our uh, sort of incumbents. We used to meet our new cassettes for the new venue on the Friday of the last week of the previous venue. And we'd come in, Martin and I, you know, in Mufti and, oh, hi, yeah, oh, what's your name? Oh, yeah, lovely name and do, do all that and just so that they could get to know us. And then suddenly we'd inhabit, you know, Madame and Monsieur Thenardier. and they were terrified, as they should be. So I think, yeah, the blue, dre- the blue dress, wearing, being able to wear the blue dress, just the look, the whole look of it, it's like,
1: yeah, she's here. She's here. Great fun. And I feel like she almost stands out more than he does because when you get to beggars at the Feet, I just remember seeing it for the first time at nine years old. And I can still picture two moments in my head. Of, it was such a big experience. But I, <laughs> the bits I can still see in my in my head were A Little Fall of Rain, which at nine years old, I um, felt like it went on forever. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, And Beggars at the Feast. Yes. Because of that costume and the hair, I everything. Know.
0: And they come back. They come back. Oh, you've had all that, all those wonderful students. I mean, I remember actually the last night of our contract in uh, Southampton, You know, I I, I very rarely came down before uh, the the wedding, but I came down and I I listened to Bring Him Home and watched them all die on the barricade. And you just think, God, it's heartbreaking. And then the only people that survive that in the show, she dies in the book, spoiler alert, uh, but in the show are these ghastly people that come and, Trump all over this wedding. It's great to be bad.
1: (laughs) Of course, of course. (laughs) Of, Of all the shows you've done, what's been the hardest either closing night or last night of a contract? Oh, is there one that stands out in your mind where you can remember standing there as the curtain came down?
0: Oh, lend me a tenner, lend me a tenner, because we we closed prematurely. First of all, but that show was surrounded by so much love and commitment from station management, from wardrobe, from management to your co-stars, to the wonderful orchestra in the pit. I mean, you know, I think we had 17 or 18 players, which is unheard of today. That that was hard. That, that was really hard because we closed prematurely and um, it wasn't fair. <laughs> Fair.
1: Do you remember that those moments? Curtain comes down, and that's it. What What did you do? Did you go straight back to your room, or you know, oh no, no,
0: there, we, we, we we took a long time to leave the stage actually, because there was many many a group hug. I think there was champagne, probably not appropriate, but there was there were a lot of tears and a lot of hugs. I remember, and then the inevitable kind of packing up the dressing room. And then I I don't actually, I had driven in because I knew I couldn't get the train back. and I didn't want to stay overnight. So I'd driven in, but I remember, well, I didn't think I started to drive home till about two o'clock in the morning.
1: (laughs) Gosh. Do you remember that drive? Do you remember how you felt and what was going through your head?
0: I do, because the next day I had a lunch party. (laughs) I had a lunch party.
1: That you were hosting. (laughs) That
0: I was hosting. Oh
1: my god! Why would you do that to yourself? I know.
0: Well, at the time we we weren't supposed to close. We had our the good old fashioned two weeks' notice. So I thought, well, you know, it'll be a distraction. So actually, what I was thinking about was, have I taken the prawns out? Okay, yeah, no, I'm going to need to make that. that That's right. I'll get the. (laughs) I think it was. It was. It was a good distraction, actually.
1: (laughs) Brilliant. As someone who's done lots of shows and had such a varied career, is the industry pre-COVID in 2019, early 2020, what you thought it was going to be when you were starting out or has it changed in a way that you didn't expect?
0: That's a very, very intelligent question. The industry has changed, undoubtedly. And I think that's for several reasons. When I came into the business, you had to have an equity card. So you already had obstacles to, to get past. You, you could go to an open audition and get the job, but you weren't guaranteed being able to do that job because you didn't have an equity card. And unless the management had one to award you, you didn't work. I have been a little bit disappointed, not across the board, but there is a, an attitude that comes with the younger generation of entitlement. And I just like to, It's surely it's more rewarding to earn respect and earn, uh, you know, a role than just expect it and expect it to to happen because that's that's what you think you know you're entitled to i think that comes along with uh the way casting has changed with the the internet with different platforms social media etc etc which my god it's great and 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 uh you know, if you need to source who sang such and such in Wicked 10 years ago, you just go to YouTube and we can all, we can all find it. The reason why I love originating roles is because it's not sourced yet. It's, it, it hasn't been done. And I wonder if one of your questions along the lines is going to be, what, what's your dream role? And my answer to that is always, I don't know, because it might not have been written yet of course there are roles that we would love to inhabit and there are great ones that uh, for a certain age group are there for the picking but would I think how I would answer that is would it be as easy or as difficult for me now as it was when I came into the business and you know I think it's I think it's harder I think it's harder because there are so many people so many people and although there are opportunities they're not the opportunities that that were available to us which were the repertory theatres where you learnt your craft you were hired in a season and in that season you would do a musical and you would do a play and you would do a Shakespeare. So you, were, you, you had that great wealth of experience to you know flex your muscles in and, and you might be holding a spear in the Shakespeare, but you'd be playing the lead in the musical. but it was all grist to your mill and all ammunition in your arsenal which informed you as an artiste. that is what saddens me
1: that is not available now. Oh, that sounds very profound. No, I loved it. <laughs> I'm kind of fascinated. I don't know if it's just because of, of the pandemic that's made me think about this in, in a way that I wouldn't necessarily have, have, have thought to. I just wonder if, and maybe it's because of, of this, the sad situation that a lot of theatres are in, it's how do we rebuild and what can we do better?
0: Do you know? I don't have the answers. And I, I know that, and I had to have a little chat with my little head, my little bonce, because until somebody is clever enough and willing to maneuver us through this unprecedented period, I can't stress about it, but it, it is heartbreaking the way the industry as a whole is being slightly disregarded, disrespected nobody's nobody's got the answers be it the, the, the science or the practicality you know you only have to look at um, Cameron so Cameron mcintosh has taken one one avenue going i'm sorry I'm not playing I'll open up when there's a vaccine." And then you've got Andrew Lloyd Webber, the other Lord, just doing his absolute, at every turn, trying to get, get the industry up and running. And I admire that, that passion. And if anyone can do it, I think he will find a way. But I think in the meantime, for all our mental health and our state of minds, we just have to hold hard, have faith and take it day by day.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. Last question. Who are your dream collaborators that you haven't worked with before?
0: Ooh, God, that's a, that's a good one. Dream collaborators. My, my. Well, I've, worked, I've been very, very fortunate to work with some cracking teams. I would say the young gentleman behind Dear Evan Hansen, Mm-hmm. And the greatest showman. I think they are extraordinary. They can ride a tune.
1: They sure can.
0: <laughs> they sure can. So perhaps I'd like to be on their radar. Yeah.
1: Oh, Benj Pasek and Justin Paul. We should definitely uh, yeah. make that happen. Drop them a
0: line. Drop them a line.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to chat to you.
0: What a pleasure. I, I've loved it. An absolute treat, darling.
1: Don't forget you can see Sophie Louise this weekend at Crazy Cox in London. For tickets, head to BrasseriesAdele.com or use the link in this episode's description. Thanks so much to Sophie Louise Dan for this week's episode and to Wayne Perry for connecting us. Next time on the podcast, we're talking about casting with Stephen Crockett from David Grindrod Associates. Until then, thank you so much for listening.